the night was rank with the smell of man. So we had ourselves a little bit of a situation this week. Uh, we were recording. Everything was great, as per usual. And I went to hit stop on my audio and everything froze completely. Um, and I lost all two hours of what we had sat down to record, which is terrible. And I feel so terrible. Um, we decided to go ahead and just work with what we had um, to kind of try to piece together the conversation the best that we could fill in the gaps uh, where it made sense for me to come come in and fill in the gaps. So there might be some awkward moments, but I think it's going to be fine. Um, It's too bad that this didn't happen on my first few episodes because then probably nobody would have noticed, but it is what it is. I'm really sorry, but hopefully it is still great. Welcome to another episode of Game of Owns. Two weeks in a row, we're doing two prologues. Two prologues in a row. We've officially begun a feast with dragons last week but now i feel like today with john and the prologue and with the reading order announced we're officially in it right it has begun, <laughs> it has begun. <laughs> okay shang soon and we just came from a meeting with our small council the folks that support the show on patreon.com slash goo we're feeling good. We're still, let's be honest, we're all still a little bit on a high from finally being able to announce the rating order, that it's final, that it's out there, and it's now something that people independent uh, from us can consume. Uh, but we certainly hope that you will read it with us because it's sort of meant to be experienced in a group. Absolutely. Our great friends, Brendan B. Fish, Jeff, Andrew Walker, it was a, a group effort. And we announced it uh, a few days ago. The response has been overwhelmingly positive and overwhelmingly excited. I, I think I think it has to be for me the the focus on not just chronology but of storytelling, something that we enjoy the heck out of on this show. Um, you know, the way that you've combined certain chapters, the way that we are going to be doing them. I mean, you mentioned prologue of book four, prologue of book five, back to back. It's just a different way of thinking about. I mean. The, the world, the story, the history, because book four accomplished, you know, one thing when it was published, and we will have read that uh, as we go forth into this new reading order. And but but this is something this is something different. This is something in addition. This is something for uh, all of our listeners to read more into, even the ones that have already read and are sullied. Um, I know Mike is excited uh, to, to do it. Hannah's uh, we all put, you know, backbreaking work into doing this, developing this, but we're all just so excited with our listener base to find and to uh, experience what we're about to do with Feast with Dragons. Um, And you said we started it last week, but this is actually, this is the first week that we're doing something so drastically out of order as to not move on to, for instance, The Prophet. Well, Mm -hmm. you're in a completely different book now, and I I am excited, and we talked about it with the small council, as Zach mentioned just before and what i really like about it is is as a sullied 
reader is that it's like you're reading the books for the first time because the chronology is in sequence, right? It's not totally out of order. Uh, it's not you're reading about one character for one book and then jumping to the next book and reading about another character who may have been in the same place. So you're getting a lot of the same story that you had previously read. I'm just excited about the fact that this was created and we get to jump into it and basically start anew. And uh, I can definitely say that reading through a, a Dance with Dragons now, it may be like the second and a half time uh, because I, I never I never finished it on the second read through. Uh, there are things, as I think is always the case when you're reading back through a book that you pick up on that you may not have noticed before, or even for people who have watched the show but may not have necessarily read the books, there are things that they'll pick up on, especially in the John chapter, that uh, you know are a little bit of, of forewarning of, of things to come. Yeah, we've just come off of a long conversation about the reading order with our small council, so forgive us if we're a bit scatterbrained on the subject. I uh, There's a link on the bottom of, of a Feast with Dragons dot com that links to a post that i did with brendan who worked on the reading order with us at watchers on the wall and there's some insights into some of our decisions and sort of the overarching thought process when we were going into creating this reading order but what i can sort of say off the top of my head now if you're not familiar with that if you haven't read that post yet or you're still wondering sort of why certain decisions were made and how they were put in, in certain ways like like mike has said we approached this with the chronological standpoint from how do we how do we put these two books together, obviously. But apart from that, we, we, we focus so much on the overall theme of how it flowed and the narrative structure from going chapter to chapter, not only for those of you that are listening to the podcast, but for those of you that are going to be reading it at your own pace. And we hope that you do notice that on the way through this uh, a Feast of Dragons, you you feel a lot of the attention that was placed in certain chapters being in certain places and uh, taking things into account like the weather and taking things into account like wh- where this is, how characters are spread out across the book and, and where they are and, and how it feels. And we're at the very, very beginning. Uh, one of our small council members, John, specifically spoke about the two chapters that we're reading today, which was exciting because we were going to record right after uh, the meeting. And he, he, he said... He really loved the decision to transition from this prologue with Faramir Sixkins into Jon Snow's first chapter. Which normally is about six Dragons. chapters in, right? Yeah, there's a handful of chapters separating mm-hmm. the two. And, and one other thing I would add, too, is it's a nice progression off of the end of A Storm of Swords where you don't feel like you're completely immersed into a new world with new characters. You still have that sense of the characters that you've come to know in the first three books because you, you're beyond the wall in the prologue, but then you know, you're right back with John, uh, to your point, uh, which John brought up. Uh, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a familiarity to it, and I think that there's something comforting about that in a way, because you don't want to feel like you're going off completely in, in a different direction, um, only to come back later on, almost like some sort of boomerang effect. But I, I do like now that, the way this was structured, you still feel like you're continuing the same story. And that's reminiscent of any other book in A Song of Ice and Fire, and that was sort of the goal here, to make A Feast of Dragons feel like it was one of the other books, when A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons don't necessarily have that, which is completely fine. That's something that we sort of addressed at length in all the writings around this stuff, whether it would be on, on Reddit or on Watchers on the Wall or just sort of etched in the inside of our brains. Like we've, especially just over the last hour, we were just talking away from the podcast. We fully appreciate and love books four and five, but this combination was sort of just 
an exercise and creativity and playing around with the format and something that we wanted to share with all of you listeners because at the end of the day you can pick up the books and read them alone you didn't have to read along with the first three books on our podcast and you don't have to read along with the next two but for the sake of what we're creating now you know it's going to be a fun exercise because we're kind of all doing this at the same time for the first time together in a custom way and so i think that in itself is going to be a lot of fun for those of you who've been following along with us and have been reading along with us just note that this is a little bit different if you have somehow missed all of the long talks about this so far um it is different and uh you should visit a feastwithdragons.com for the order in which we'll be going forward but ultimately i mean i know we're only a couple chapters in after today's episode but i love it already I think it really offers a unique perspective, and we're gonna we're gonna do it. We're gonna keep doing it. Now, I also want to mention though that uh, we we did get off that meeting with our small council. We have really lovely people over there at Patreon, but we recently rechristened. In addition to Zach, just bought up a bunch of domains last week. That was what he did. Um, <laughs> but now we have the squad of Ice and Fire is now our uh, podcast segment. <laughs> yeah, okay, it, over it on is. Patreon. He's so embarrassed. He's like, "Yeah, I called it that." If you do subscribe to our Patreon, and you do listen to A Squad of Ice and Fire. <laughs> there will be further conversations in that regard, plus a handful of other things. I think we recorded something in the hotel room with Micah and Eric when two of us were in a hotel room, two of us weren't. One of us were turned closeted. Out to be a lot of fun. Something about shoes. <laughs> and now the second approach into A Feast with Dragons. The second prologue, the prologue from A Dance of Dragons. Oh. And John 1, the first John chapter. If you finished A Storm of Swords and you waited patiently for Feast for Crows, you would have to then wait patiently or impatiently for A Dance with Dragons to reach this prologue and to reach this John chapter. But we're here. We have chaos and I think we have calm, right? To some degree. Yeah, a little bit. John's waking up in a comfortable bed. Mm if you were there between you know the ending of one book and then the other and then at the beginning of this next one it was a long time to kind of figure out what's going on with Jon Snow yeah just a little bit i couldn't imagine having to wait uh, that long a period of time though i find myself in a very similar situation now waiting for the winds of winter when when you take major characters and give them entire books off and, and you know we're talking about the tyrians and the dannys of the world it, it really must frustrate readers knowing that, you know, maybe you're able to get a little bit of an insight to John through Sam's chapters, but, you know, you're not with characters that you've come to know for mm. three books. Uh, and, and not only do you not get them within a feast for crows, you got to wait then for the next book to come out. So I certainly can uh, sympathize with people who are frustrated where they are right now waiting to find out what happens in in book six but what i really found interesting to start off with this prologue is that this is now the third prologue that takes place beyond the wall Mm -hmm. Uh, so clearly beyond the wall is important and we should pay attention to it clearly and there are things that have uh, that george r R. martin has tried to drive home to us now in each of these three chapters right because we've seen in in some way, shape, or form, these White Walkers, and we should now have it clear in our mind that they're important. What they mean to the overall end game, we'll find out. But uh, I just thought that this man is not 
taking us to this place or different places beyond the wall to start off three books with with for no reason. Mm. At least people are referencing it though. When Melisandre and John's chapter was like, "This is a a hinge of the world." Is that yeah, what called it? yeah? And then there was magic beneath the wall. We'll read the quote later. Yeah, on it's a good episode, one. But the fact that we're getting attention to these matters and 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 in an even much bigger way than we did. In a storm of swords, and this is a book apart. Not that we'll keep. I know that we keep hearkening back to that, but this was a book apart um, from that ending, from the from John getting elected. From I mean, it was a book and chapters away from Varamir's six skins burning in the sky. And at that time, we thought it was Arel only, but to know that you know things sh- shook out the way that they did is just it's that much more interesting. And waiting for this prologue, not that we knew it was coming, but it must have been such a fantastic way to begin a dance of dragons i know that when i finished a feast for crows for it to start out this way i was just like come on <laughs> because the the chapter in old town was amazing but this is such an this was such a beautifully written look at this point of view mm. and it made me understand these people so much more it made me understand and think about the folks beyond the wall in, in a totally different way. And it made me, honestly, guys, it made me think of Jon Snow totally differently. Oh. Well. well, it's just, it's really very immersive. You begin to see that this guy who uh, does terrible things, has done terrible things, and continues to do that throughout the chapter, has sort of some of the same fears and interests that, that, that we do. I mean, he's struggling, essentially, uh, throughout the chapter with the actions that he has taken, whether or not that is, whether or not he is an abomination. Um, as he continues to live his life. And he ultimately is the kind of guy who, like, I suppose, the best of wildlings who've survived this long, he's hardened, he's tough, and he's willing to go that extra length. And whatever it means about him, be damned. So you just get this character in Varamir who changes his own name. I mean, he's basically... He's high-ranking among the wildlings. And yet, John, and we read just recently in Storm of Swords, smashed his his attack smashed his advance and you know he's he's basically become separated from his animals and he's lost the battle and it's kind of just so interesting because we don't have a man's perspective but to see another man who is who's kind of lost the battle against John and seeing what he does in sort of the moments immediately following that so i i agree just reading the wall and not taking an entire book off um is it keeps some of these thoughts fresh in our minds just the character development, though, that you get, or I don't even know if you call it development. Maybe it's just more just you get a character profile for just who. Insight. We get information yeah. just given to us. Who Varamir was and currently is, right? This is a guy who was abandoned by his parents for what I read as being responsible for the death of his brother. Right. Uh, yeah. In yep. his very, very early stages of learning how to warg uh, into these dogs that they had and uh you know he's died nine times prior uh you know he's a guy who goes to battle on the back of a snow bear that's 13 feet tall <laughs> 13 and hates feet him tall, which i don't blame the bear i understand that. No, no but just just the fact that you learn that right that when he tries to go yeah. inside the mind of the bear the bear is constantly fighting with him he swipes and yeah you know, takes down everything around him it, you know it shows just how dependent Varamir has become. And and really the opening of this chapter shows you like he's living through his ability to ward now. He's dying as a man. He's been basically fatally wounded and is just trying to grasp onto anything that he possibly can. He's losing all of those 
that 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 he has been able to walk into over time, right, and mm-hmm. become Varamir Sixkins. He's lost the bear, he's lost his shadow cat, he's lost his his wolves for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, and he's he's just losing his grip. Uh, and really, uh, his solution is to walk into this woman who is who has been taking care of him and trying to mend him over time, and goes very very badly at the end of this chapter but to be able to see through the eyes of a skin changer the fact that he which i think was alluded to earlier uh in this discussion he recognizes john for what he is and to me that was full confirmation that john is a warg if we didn't really have that confirmation he recognized john for what he was he talked about how powerful john could be and how he should have taken his direwolf from him in that moment uh, and 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 so it, it's just so cool to to get inside a wildling's head, uh, somebody like this, and learn about him and learn who he is and and the reasons why he's done the things he's done. I was surprised that we went back here mm-hmm. after an entire book separation from the battle at Castle Black, right? To come back to Vermeer, which to come back at all, but to come back to Vermeer Sixkins. Do you guys remember when we met him? When John was taken to treat with Mance, not even to treat with Mance, when John was taken to Mance, and we met this guy, and I remember when we read, and Micah, you were, you know, this is already in your mind, and all of you reading that were celebrating, <sighs> this is already in your mind, but Eric and I, it was our first yeah. time, so we're like, hold on a second, White Walkers, Shadow Babies, okay, there's a guy that's riding on the back of a huge bear <laughs> that just has a, a little, just a, a tiny army of animals surrounding him, like shadow cats, like all of these these creatures that that he's that legendary. And I remember thinking, like, hold on a second, this guy's probably the most interesting person we've met in the book so far. His name is Varimir Sixkins. He rides on a bear. He's he's basically a general in Mance Raider's collection of those beyond the wall. And we're just like that was so cool because it just it, there were giants and we're meeting people like Tormund that are so normal and we're meeting Mance Raider who has a black cloak slashed with red and then we're meeting Vermeer Sixkins and I it was he was such a mystery to me and he remained such a mystery I remember seeing artist renditions of him atop the bear looking wild with all of the animals surrounding him so to go back after all of this time was cool but to go back and to learn about the guy that was a constant mystery to me was so awesome and learn about him. We did almost all there is to know really. Yeah. I mean, no character is forgotten in these books, which is really cool. They all have more story than you could ever imagine. Just kind of talking about how, what brand did is really probably frowned upon in the warging community. If that's even a thing. He, I mean, he just, he doesn't have the opportunity to go to his group meetings. Like Varamir may have had. Yeah. <laughs> they have, they, they do. They, they have meetings and that's how Varamir met Orel, you know, and that's, which I, I think thought that was... honestly, like Hagen is, uh, Varamir's soul, you know, moral compass here. And it's funny because he struggles with it so much, but like the implication that Hagen's spirit is still not completely gone. Oh, that's yeah. I like yeah, that. Right. It's just like, Oh shit. He could still be in there somewhere. We don't know. There's no, you know, one authority on warging. Hagen was the closest that you had to it, and Veramir decided to basically cheat him out of this thing called the Second Life, which that is something. I mean, we've had John, uh, I almost said wet dreams, wolf dreams before. Um, we've had Arya wolf dreams. The Starks are often very connected to their wolves. We've we've pieced together that Bran is a warg, all this other stuff. But like 
getting an insider's perspective from somebody who's sort of been trained to be a warg by another man who knew how to do it. Of course, this would only happen north of the wall where they know that that shit is still real. Um, but that whole thing was interesting. This concept of second life. It's almost like, you know, I say every prologue chapter in, in A Song of Ice and Fire has sort of magic in some way. And it's, to me, getting the further information on, on warging, in addition to just this really interesting character, um, was exciting and insightful. And you just don't know, like, at the end of the chapter where it, where it all nets out um, with him. That train of thought is perfect because Vermeer, for all intents and purposes, can we say that he's he might be the foremost authority on warging that is alive and that is not completely supernatural? Like, maybe the Three-Eyed Raven has more information. Mm on the subject he's very very experienced and incredibly skilled as we've you'll read this chapter and i have several quotes this is this is a very beautifully written chapter but he's done it every question that's in his mind he doesn't know he he feels around and that's interesting because we learn so much more but we still don't know everything mm. which has done nothing but kind of humanize this person our interest me. too I think I compare what Bran does to what Varimir does in this prologue alone, and it's it's just it's so elementary, and John as well. It's it's also elementary compared to Varimir, but I can't help but think about what kind of of people that they'll be if their skills do improve to a level that um, we've seen here. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. But does this does this not all out say, guys? This being the prologue, and we know how prologues affect the rest of the story. Is this chapter not here? to all out tell us about the second life and to all out give us hope and information about the future of John. I, I hope so. I hope I've absolutely 100% thought about that at least. I did too. Uh, what, what worries me though is sort of the advice that Hagen gives to Varamir about how, you know, really when you're no longer grounded in your, your corporeal sense, right? You no longer have your body if you're warging into an animal for too long of a period of time, eventually the human side of you will completely disappear and you don't really exist much anymore. So I worry about that for John and his future because we don't really know what his fate is. We just know that he got stabbed and he's lying in the snow with a lot of blood around him. But if in fact his only chance is to warg into ghost how long will john truly exist before ghost takes over we need it would be really cool if we got a ghost point of view character chapter um i'd be totally okay with that <sighs> that would be awesome <laughs> i want a ghost pov even Varimir was like listen he man should have just let me warg into that direwolf because that would have been a skin fit for a king yeah. And I was a little proud. I felt a surge of pride for Ghost. And that's that's there. at least for now the difference between him and Bran. I mean, Bran did it by accident to Hodor and and Varamir is is completely intentionally. I mean, that's essentially his yeah. plot to to escape. His body is damaged. Can, can you really blame him for like trying trying to find a way out? Of course you can cuz everybody's responsible for their own actions, but he's going to die. I know what you're saying. Essentially, though. right? And he's he's going to die and he's the kind of person who has pushed the envelope. He's pushed it before by ignoring all of the things that Hagen told him. He's pushed it and turned into what we could say is, is quite a badass with riding the bear and everything. Like he's managed to keep essentially a, a, a castle where these animals wait on him, <laughs> paw, <laughs> paw and other paw. Um, and like, it's, it's pretty interesting that he's bending the will of these creatures 
with such um, lack of remorse. Deafness. You know. Oh, that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we we, we learn a lot about Veramir, and I, I I lost a lot of respect for him in this chapter because before how he's just the worst character that we've ever met basically and i know that 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 may not be the case but before he was kind of this mythic figure to me now i just know that he he yeah he chooses the he recounts his crimes too towards the very end and they're they're pretty offensive (laughs) i mean i don't know what other words he used to describe them but yeah he's definitely in like the top 10 worst characters in in this series in terms of the things that he's done when he was face to face with Thistle for the first time, after he was stabbed by the woman's son when he was trying to steal her squirrel, squirrel hide cloak, is that what it yeah, was? Yeah, I think so. And I'll read this directly from the book. It says, "Mance has fallen." The survivors told each other in despairing voices. Mance is taken. Mance is dead. Harma's dead, and Mance is captured. The rest run off and left us. Thistle had claimed as she was sewing up his wound. Tormund, the Weeper. Six skins, all them brave raiders. Where are they now? She does not know me, Vermeer realized then. And why should she? Without his beasts, he did not look like a great man. I was Vermeer's six skins, who broke bread with Mance Raider. He had named himself Vermeer when he was ten. A name fit for a lord, a name for songs, a mighty name and fearsome. Yet he had run from the crows like a frightened rabbit. The terrible lord Vermeer had gone craven, but he could not bear that she should know that. So he told the spearwife that his name was Hagen. Liar. I love how that's like still part of him. He's like, why the hell did I do that? Of all the names that I've known, why Hagen? But it's it's to signify his struggle still for, I mean, it's not much of a struggle, but he still kind of is weighing his options. I mean, essentially there's a point where, and we know how this chapter ends and this chapter ends amazingly, but there's this point where he is just kind of screwed because if Thistle has left him, Right. I mean, she seems to do all right by him. She patches up his wound. If only he would stay still, he might might make it through. But essentially, she's gone for a couple more days than expected. And he has to go out looking for her. But if she had left him, if she had not gone back, he would have probably just laid down and died Um, and, you know, quickly met the oncoming army. The gravity of this chapter, guys, has just sort of fallen on me. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a a lot here to discuss. Yeah. I mean, the implications alone, we could sit here and talk about Jon Snow mm-hmm. and about how this chapter, in my mind, I question how anyone has been afraid of Jon's fate after such a clear narrative on the kind of person that he could be. Vermeer mm-hmm. yeah. sees his power. He feels that he's greater than the average warg, we could say. Greater than the average bear. <laughs> and we know... Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm wondering how people were afraid that of Jon Snow. Like, what would happen to him next? Like, is he really dead? Like, well, well I'm not sure that it's a I second life he has too. to fear. Yeah. Is is it just that his connection to Ghost is more natural? You know, I, I don't think Jon, he doesn't force the issue. And I think you guys touched on this. And the same could be said for Bran. Like, the way that Varamir does. He doesn't use Ghost as a weapon uh, in the way that that Varamir uses the shadow cat or, or the bear or the wolves. And it, to me, you know, one of the things that uh, I, like I took away from this chapter too, was when he was, you know, in the hut, he's starving. He's and the only way that he's able to sort of you know, make himself feel full is to warg into one of his wolves and, and, you know, taste 
the flesh and the blood of of those around him and, and it reminded me sometimes of, of how Bran is inside Summer and or and, and Summer's off eating somewhere and how he feels full when his dire wolf is eating. So there's definitely a you know a sort of an eerie feeling around all of that uh, and and I don't know necessarily what to make of it but it it makes me somewhat uh you know scared for the future uh, because we we just don't know enough yet. Like we we're getting a nice glimpse into what Varamir is like as a skin changer and and how he operates. I'm sure there's the total opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of you know, those that have skin changed in the past that are, you know, sort of one with those that they work into and, and mm-hmm. there's not this contentious type of relationship. And I think you see that in John, you see that in Bran, um, you know, in their ability to work into their direwolves, whereas everything with Varamir seems like it's a constant battle. Well, I think the, the fiber of his person that we learned from an early age when he killed his brother, to their oldest and most loyal dog, just kind of describes, you know, in the hardened reality that they had to grow up in. John was raised in Winterfell. Bram was raised in Winterfell. So if we're speaking about them specifically, I don't think we have a lot of hardship and sort of evil to worry about on their ends, right? Like, I don't see them making those sort of harsh decisions that would lead them to take advantage of other right. creatures. They were raised better than that. <laughs> see, now we're getting into kind of a hairy area because we don't know if this is going to happen to John. John could die. John could warg. He could warg into ghost, or he could find some way to be resurrected via the Red God. If that does end up happening, there's just so many options, and I'm not sure which one that the story will take. Or if he does warg, does he even warg into ghost, or does he? You know what I mean? Like, there's so many options. Brand. There's a lot. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to take away. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of theories, and there's a lot of. Them. That's why it's so hard to talk about this prologue because it's so topical and timely. And I, I had no idea it was going to come in this way. And like I said, I had no idea to explore this subject so fully. And when I say fully, I mean fully. When he reaches his sort of first true death, his body passing away at the end of this prologue, we fly through the sky and we down the tree join roots. with a werewood. Yeah. yeah, like it's 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 unbelievable how how interesting it gets because we've always thought about this stuff, but we haven't necessarily read it. And here it is, prologue for a dance with dragons, and we see a bloody John at the end of season five and i'm sure he'll be bloody and dead at the end of a dance of dragons so i don't know it's it leaves so many questions yep and we see bran right at, at the end of this chapter at least through varamir's eyes he sees kids riding on the back of an elk mm-hmm. <laughs> he sees a dire wolf right it's it's a very cool chapter it's a it's a great way to open up this book and to give you more insight i feel like you know when we mentioned at the start of this discussion about how it's the third time we're beyond the wall in a prologue, Eric mentioned how everyone has magic. I feel like very slowly, George gives you a little bit more every book in terms of the the insight into this the magical part of this world. And this was just a, a great kind of way to, to start things off. One other thing that this chapter does is I think it reminds you where you left off at the end of A Storm of Swords, as, at least as it relates to the wildlings and, and their fate, right? Uh, mm. They're completely scattered. They, they've been sent off in so many different directions. The, the battle has been lost. Mance has been taken captive. And really, there's no leadership left. So all of them are left to truly fend for themselves. I love how, in the conversation between Thistle and Varamir, 
it's just assumed it's like oh we're screwed now like we don't have mance it's like mance is the uniter that is what he did for those people and without him as john has observed in the past to at their at their heart at their core they are unorganized um tactically and this but this poses another problem for another reason which is that the army of the white walkers is coming um this is the whole impetus for them even attacking the wall to begin with to when they did is to escape this this army and now that they have lost their leader um and i think veramir even calls it the after he's pissed off about john he's, he still calls the white walkers the real enemy the true enemy uh that's exactly right like ultimately these people now have nowhere to go and you find out that they're splitting up you find out that some of them are going to hard home Sorry, sorry, feel sorry for them. There's actually a great description uh, in terms of how the wildlings have scattered. Uh, straight from the book, it says, One day as they fled, a rider came galloping through the woods on a gaunt white horse, shouting that they all should make for the milk water, that the weeper was gathering warriors to cross the Bridge of Skulls and take the Shadow Tower. Many followed him, more did not. Later, a dour warrior in fur and amber went from cookfire to cookfire, urging all the survivors to head north and take refuge in the Valley of the Thens. Why he thought they would be safe there when the Thens themselves had fled the place, Faramir never learned. But hundreds followed him. Hundreds more went off with the woods witch, who'd had a vision of a fleet of ships coming to carry the free folk south. We must seek the sea, cried Mother Mole, and her followers turned east east to hard home yeah who i was gonna say who do you guys think that that is gonna be most successful out of the, that group of people right like if if wildlings get on the sea i would say go south my guess would be the ones that are already south of the wall i'd go back to the wall i know that they were scared but can you imagine being caught in that grinder white walkers are coming now we're fighting the crows that we've been growing we've been raised to totally hate and we have the knights in their invincible steel now we have to run the other direction this is just chaos. Yeah. And speaking of chaos, the end of this chapter. Oh, gosh. Oh, God. If it was yeah. adapted, it would give me chills. Can you imagine how cool it would have been if this was adapted, though? Because we have this just struggle with Vermeer and all of his internal monologue. And fine, that's difficult to, to, to put on the screen. I understand. And we've spoken about a lot of it. And this is something that you, you really, really, really need to read because it's, it's, it's such a cool chapter. But... He's searching around for a way to live, and eventually Thistle comes back. When we, you know, we didn't think that this was going to happen, and what was it? Just within a moment, yeah. he his his mind went right into survival mode. He was like, "All right, this person's here. I have to work into her because I am literally didn't even dying. say hello." Just the way that it's worded, this attack on this other sentient person, and she's essentially pulls a Catelyn and is tearing at her own eyes. She's screaming. But the way it's worded, where the pronouns shift for a moment, it's his arms that are flailing mm-hmm. for, and then it's her legs that are that are that she's losing her footing. Then it's their tongue that gets bitten off. I mean, it's terrifyingly evocative. What this chapter does for warging is very impressive. And this is directly following the clash because it did not go well for Varamir. Right after all that we went through in this prologue for her to finally come back when we thought that she wouldn't return and he's been bleeding out and he's been working his way through the snow and he's known that he's going to have to search for Sly or he's going to have to search for one eye. This is the end of his rope when he finally gets into her. I mean, we're talking within probably a minute she had killed herself or she was dying. The white world turned and fell away. For a moment, it was as if he were inside the weirwood gazing out through the carved red eyes as a dying man twitched feebly on the ground and a mad woman danced blind and bloody underneath the moon 
weeping red tears and ripping at her clothes. This isn't a prophecy. This is what he's seeing. Then both were gone, and he was rising, melting, his spirit borne on some cold wind. He was in the snow and in the clouds. He was a sparrow, a squirrel, an oak. A horned owl flew silently between his trees, hunting a hare. That's when he is the tree. Verimer was inside the owl, inside the hare, inside the trees. Deep below the frozen ground, earthworms burrowed blindly in the dark. And he was them as well. I am the wood, and everything that's in it, he thought, exulting. A hundred ravens took to the air, cawing as they felt him pass. A great elk trumpeted, unsettling the children clinging to his back. A sleeping direwolf raised his head to snarl at empty air. Before their hearts could beat again, he had passed on, searching for his own, for one eye, sly and stalker, for his pack. His wolves would save him, he told himself. That was his last thought as a man. But it's not the end of the chapter. I love this. Like he just following his perspective as he transcends bodies is I mean, it hasn't been done yet before, except for the wolf dreams, which can be also considered dreams, but the interconnectivityness of it all is just astounding how essentially the dire wolf that lifts his head and howls, the elk, the trumpets scaring the children, they all know that this has happened, regardless of how far away it's actually occurring. They know that a new warg has just joined his second life, if that's what that is, um, or has died. I love how connected that is. And of course, it's hinted at earlier when they talk about John, when they talk about the wolves. But seeing this, where he's the trees, he's the earthworms, I mean, come on. It's... And the way the chapter ends is just really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to basically it's beyond creepy. see yourself lying there and then see the person who you just tried to work into, her deep, hollow eye sockets turn icy blue, and all those around her look pretty much the same. One by one, they raise their heads toward the three wolves on the hill. <laughs> what did you think, though? I, I mean, I took away that, that Varamir becomes one-eye, right? The one wolf that he didn't think that he would be able to overtake. His relationship with one-eye is strange because he would warg into Sly when she was in heat. Another level of abomination on, on Hagen's point of view or the credo of how wargs should behave. He's inside of Sly while they're making other wolves. So I think that just part of his connectedness with these wolves has just made him respect sort of their pack leader. Mm. And I think that he was sort of innately afraid of one eye. Not real fear, maybe, but a strange kind of respect, I think. Not necessarily fear, but he just sort of seceded to the pack leader in that case, I think. Yeah, But I just, I guess when I read it, I looked at it, at least in that one moment, that he was one eye staring across, seeing Thistle staring right back at him. I'm not saying he's going to remain one eye. I just think that that was kind of the last. I mean, we don't we don't know yet because we don't know you know what happens next down the line right. for him in particular. It's like what happened with Orrell. If you truly die and you move from your first life into your second life, I I believe that it's it's a it's a hosting of a more simple life of the mind of an animal, and over time you begin to slip and lose what it is to be a, a, not necessarily human, but to have the sort of sentience mm. that a human has. So for now, in his fresh second life, he's able to still see the white of thistle and think, she sees me. Does that give us hints as to the whites as well? Like, the, the whites retain the memory of their bodies that... the 
previous people that they were. She sees me. What does that mean? I mean, do they have awareness that goes beyond the viewing? Can they feel what's inside of the things that they see? It's a hell of an opening for a book. It's fun to see these prologues back to back because they do flesh out different areas of the story that are still mysterious to us. And one is fire, the other is ice. Oh. Exactly. And from the mind of Vermeer Sixkins, one warg to another, we enter John One, who is in the mind of his dire wolf, a skin fit for a king. <laughs> or a lord commander. A lot of warging in this book. <laughs> a white wolf raced through a black wood beneath a pale cliff as tall as the sky. Mm. The moon ran with him, slipping through a tangle of bare branches overhead. Funny how the moon does that across the starry sky. He's very much in another creature that is in another place right now, but it's still that question of, is it really real? Um, if you can be woken from it or like where... Hard to, hard to say what I'm trying to say here, except to say that that crow sucks for waking him up. Verimer told us that Jon Snow was a yes. warg and a respectable one at that. We begin Jon's chapter... And a wolf dream, something that we've sort of grown accustomed to over the course of these books. We spent valuable time in the mind of Ghost, sort of a status update on Nymeria mm-hmm. and a revisitation of his long ago memory as a small pup south of the wall and the rest of his brothers and sisters. It says that he could smell basically four of them, right? The taste of blood was on his tongue and his ears rang to the song of the hundred cousins. So he's hearing all of these these wolves communicate over a long distance. Once they had been six, five whimpering blind in the snow beside their dead mother, sucking cool milk from her hard dead nipples whilst he crawled off alone. Four remained, and one the white wolf could no longer sense. That's Grey Wind. Yeah, it's so sad. And we have an update on Nymeria's pack. It says, many a night his sister's pack gorged on the flesh of sheep and cows and horses, the prey of men, and sometimes even on the flesh of man himself. So she's still tearing up the countryside. She's gathering something of a posse. <laughs> she howls, they howl. It's pretty big. Uh, a great posse. She's, yeah. she's getting a following. And uh, I think John raises an interesting question when he wakes up and he's thinking back about this dream, specifically as it relates to uh, Summer and Shaggy Dog. You know he he can tell that Ghost can sense these two direwolves, these two brothers of his. So he wonders, knowing that Bran and Rickon are are dead, if his brothers somehow live on inside of their wolves. He has sort of the answers to all of the questions that he seeks. He just doesn't know it yet. It's kind of the cool thing, but it, it relates to him being, as it was said in the previous chapter, uh, in the prologue, that he's just untrained. Yeah, and he knew that that was one of his kin. Yes, that. Saved him at Queen's Crown. Mm-hmm. He knew that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's just a, a really interesting sixth sense. And when he wakes from the dream, it's like they're like day and night because he has to go to be a mortal man and talk about seating part of the wall, talk about seating castles. Very boring stuff. Not boring because it's like written poorly or anything, but boring in comparison because it's not some adventure of changing skins and spirits and having the sixth sense. It's essentially he is forced to get up from the dream yet again and just be a, a Lord Commander. And the transition's a bit <laughs> black and white, yeah. especially for the fact that there's a bird speaking English jumping on top of his, or speaking the common tongue, jumping on top of his chest, yelling his last name. 
you know, there's a bit of a disconnect there. And you got to think to yourself, guys, after such a powerful chapter about warging, it's like, all right, is who is inside of this bird? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody who hates John. <laughs> that bird. Yeah, no, and this this is this is great because the moment John wakes um Dolores Ed, who's taking care of him at the moment, asks him what he'd like for breakfast. He's ignoring the feathers flying in the air. He says, Shall I fetch my lord some breakfast, right? The corn replies, or the the, yeah. the raven replies first. He says, Corn, corn, corn. John says, Roast raven. And half a pint of ale, uh-huh. right? He's starting early. Having a steward fetch and serve for him felt strange. Not long ago, it would have been him fetching breakfast for Lord Commander Mormont. And then Ed says, three corns. <laughs> <laughs> he counts the corns. And one roast raven. Very good, my lord. I wonder if, I wonder if Dollar said is secretly the, the raven. Wouldn't that be crazy? <laughs> that would be crazy. We'll shelve that one for now. I just think it's a very intelligent raven. Wise beyond its years. Mm. It is wise beyond its years. It's very intelligent. It wants corn for breakfast. I feel like Micah knows something more about the Raven than I do. No, I really don't. <laughs> you promise? I do promise. It's a big player in the end of book five. Now that we're getting so well caught up with you, Micah, that the show's not going to be selling any longer, you're going to be able to hold the wind. Like, you have Winds of Winter already, and you're just going to be holding that above our heads and everyone else I listening. Do. I think that would only be fitting. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, been going through it very slowly, making my edits. That's what's holding George up. <laughs> Right, on his right. release, yeah. Uh, getting back to the chapter, though, uh, one thing that stood out to me that uh, I wanted to ask about because I really am not totally sure what it means was it was also at the beginning part of this chapter, and John uh, recalls it from uh, you know something that Maester Aemon said. Mm-hmm. Yep. Two kings to wake the dragon, the father first and then the son, so both die kings. That just seemed to come to me out of left field. I, yeah, yeah. Why was it in this chapter? What's its importance? <laughs> well, hold on. You've read the books too, so you can you can formulate a theory about it. Well, you know, we know the only thing I've got is that we know from the first Sam chapter back in Feast for Crows that while a- like Amon's proclamation here is like a counterpoint to the idea that I mean, essentially Melisandre is going to sacrifice. It's it's king's blood to them. I know John tries and corrects Stannis and Melisandre and says, no, they're not really kings just because he's he's the son. It doesn't work that way. But they're still hoping to burn the child. Like that much is very clear. And so I think what Aemon's um, words sort of indicate is that, that, that the child is in danger. I think so too. But where did he get these words? Is this something that he, that he yeah, just... Yeah, when was it spoken? Thinking about what is going to happen in this case, or is this from a text that he's read at some point and maybe it will come soon. So then our minds have to shift to, okay, two Kings to wake the dragon. First off, is a dragon actually going to be woken or is this existential? It says the father first and then the son, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Cause then they would both die Kings, but we know that wildlings don't necessarily go from King to who is your son? This is a King. This is the first sort of chosen leader. They're, I think, if anything, close to some some kind of democracy. It's not like they were they were born. Mance Raider wasn't born king of all the wildlings, right. so it's it's difficult to say. I don't think it applies in this situation, but it did work as a warning to John. Maybe we'll find out more down the road. I I don't know. It just struck me as as an odd statement to include in this chapter. As interesting as it has been to see what John has been up to, and that he's still getting counsel from Meister Eamon, and we see who his steward is, and this is all very interesting. In the meantime, I mean, Stannis has been pretty busy. 
actually, and Stannis is not one to sit around. He probably doesn't even sleep, let alone dream. Um, but it was really interesting to see what sort of, what his plans were moving forward. Um, this is more information than we got uh, at the end of Storm of Swords, uh, although that's all touched on with wildlings inhabiting the gift, things that John has consented to. But Stannis is ever the unhappy, I guess it's it says in the book he's not, he's, he was very prickly guest. He's moving forward. He wants to garrison these castles. He wants to mount uh, more attacks and... It's kind of interesting how much information John already knows, um, and it's not—it's probably not magical. It's just that he's had some informants, being the Lord Commander, and you get this guy who is still this kid. He's still this bastard kid, but he's not anymore because he's Lord Commander. And then you have this king that's in dispute, but it's a power struggle essentially. Like if they didn't like each other so much, they there would be a bloodbath. You really there think would be that? A, I, I mean, I see that. Stannis, at least for the time being, is using John to his advantage as much as he possibly can. You know, that's why he makes the offer because he recognizes the fact that John could be legitimized as a Stark, and that mm-hmm. would be a huge asset to him in his attempt to win the North over and have more bannermen, uh, you know, rally to his cause. If he had John on his side, without John on his side, John is not worth as much to him. So. I just that's how I see the relationship. I don't I don't see it as being as chummy as they as they were on screen. It's mm. true, but they're they're not completely at odds. John is confident enough to say the things that he needs to say and you know Stannis is is usually very absolute, but I guess he's respecting the order of the Night's Watch, which I in return respect that he's respecting that. If that makes much sense. We see a very different dynamic when John is making his way to go see Stannis. Sir Godfrey firing the one who slayed the giant that was running, um, calls him boy flat out in front of everyone. And we're kind of foreshadowing things to happen and the sort of relationship he'll have with certain members of the, the Night's Watch. And we see him meet Stannis and Stannis, is isn't being nice to him by any stretch of the imagination. He calls him bastard. He uses whatever language he likes. But Sanus does take into account the things that he's saying, and it does seem, for the most part, that he's taking John's advice when it comes to certain matters. And I think that that's important because Sanus is usually very deciduous, but he's taking John's counsel and respecting John for who he is. Meanwhile, John's own subjects, you could say, not necessarily subjects, but brothers, are calling him boy in front of others. That is kind of interesting. Um, especially as it ties into that discussion he ends up having with Melisandre just about knowing where your enemies are. Um, Stannis, though he threatens to behead John, um, would probably <laughs> not immediately follow through at, with it. Whereas the situation that John basically shrugs off is not to be taken too lightly. Right. It would, it would appear. Stannis knows of the 19 forts along the wall, and he wants to see them manned. So in this discussion, which is a a jovial, not quite jovial, back and forth between the king and the Lord Commander, he gives John a year, a year to fill these broken forts along the wall, castles. John's keeping in mind the history of the Night's Watch. They don't work closely with wildlings, and they don't give castles to Southron lords. That's just not how Mm -hmm. they work. And he is basically towing the line of being known as the Lord Commander who gave it all away. 
And Stannis isn't even the king. He is the king for all intents and purposes, but he's not the king of the Seven Kingdoms coming here and in dismay of a united front giving away castles because they need them. This is They're in the middle of a rebellion right now, so even more so against him, and they don't quite know the situation with the Lannisters down south. And Stannis even says himself that the, the people in the north still fear Tywin Lannister's wrath. They don't know that he's dead, and the ones that do, like they, they're still connected with the falling action from his deals and decisions. So it's a very hairy situation for Jon Snow. And he's set with this piece of paper that will, you know, he's Stannis is asking too much. Well, he surely doesn't take well to be insulted by young girls. He crumbles the paper up. What is this? (laughs) But I was happy to read that again. Uh, I really like the moment in the show. How old is this wretched girl child? Oh God. We know that it's not uh, very uh, easy for Stannis to rally the North to his cause. The Karstarks are the only family that is made note of that have actually uh, agreed to help support Stannis. John mentions the name Wyman Manderley, uh, and and that that should be a person that Stannis considers treating with. We'll see if how that develops moving forward, but his options are limited. Uh, he was really hoping that John would be the key to the North for him. And, and John truly disappoints him. Mm, Wyman Manderley down White Harbor way. The way that he's holding over, and this happens at least twice in the conversation, he's holding it over John's head that Stannis, he Stannis was the one who saved the wall. I mean, as good as John was tactically, it was this King, this guy who showed up and he feels, I believe that there was a debt to be paid. It's hard for us to give three corns when we just read who was coming in the prologue previous. And it's just like, okay, well, we must have a united front. Stannis is losing a bit of his luster from a storm of swords. I just wish that he was more wired into the situation. This seems awful bureaucratic versus actionable. And I'm not sure if I respect that fully. Stannis's men are composed of people like Salvador San, um, for instance, who gets a shout out in this chapter. And, I mean, he's got his own set of concerns, and if he's really going to take this this north, he needs more of a, a a sure thing. He needs more of a force, and he's encountering this resistance from John, but he's not necessarily as pissed about it as he as we can see him being, uh, like as pissed as he was about Blackwater. And I think it's because he is hoping for John, hoping to still be able to use John the way you were saying, Micah. Yeah, and he uses Lightbringer to impress John. He lays that glowing <laughs> sword across that map for a little bit of extra light. It glows for him. Too bad John didn't have his sword. With that wolf's head on the pommel yep. and the grip. It'll leave it at the door. Melisandre wants to walk John home after school. Oh, so is romantic. Like, he knows how to get back, okay? I bet you know what sound I bet they, that he made when they left. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much foreboding in in these pages. In the conversations between Melisandre and John, yeah, for sure. I have dreamed of your wall, Jon Snow. Great was the law that raised it, and great the spells locked beneath its ice. Huh. We walk beneath one of the hinges of the world. Yeah, I, I don't think there exists in the book the same self-doubt that you have of her in the show, which I'm sure is played for effect for a reason. But yeah, of course. ultimately, I mean, it just—it really does come out of nowhere when she uses uh, Egret's lines against John. It's like wait a minute, where the hell did you get that from? And there's no, I mean, it's the end of the chapter, so there's no reflection time. John isn't confused, but 
I think if if we're reading what we're supposed to be reading, that's supposed to be a, as big a moment as it was in the show. Well, she has a really eerie line where she says, I could speak to kings long dead and children not yet born and watch the years right? and seasons flicker past until the end of days. In her flames. But to your point, you get more of an understanding of her as as an individual, as would be the case with any, when you actually get to point of view chapters. Uh, so that'll be interesting once we get to it. Another thing she brought up that I thought was interesting was the interpretation of this must come versus this may come. And I think we saw a moment like that back in A Storm of Swords when she looks into the flames and you know the, the letter had come from up north and Davos had delivered it and she realized that her interpretation may have been wrong in terms of what was the most important war to be fighting. So is she legitimate? You know, she, clearly she's able to make errors and make mistakes. And that distinction versus what must come versus what may come, be interested to see how that all factors into what lies ahead. After a very foreboding warning from Melisandre, she does drop the line from Egret, you know nothing, Jon Snow. Yeah, it's it's a very ominous way, much like the prologue, right? The way that the chapter ends with that line, because you know you're immediately meant to think of Egret and how in the world somebody like Melisandre would know that line. It's just it's chilling. And she's quite she's quite confident in her abilities. Remember when they're they're walking and she says, uh, "My faith will warm me." Mm-hmm. It's like you know she is not kidding around. We've seen again the prologue of. Uh, Meister Cresson from book two, the magic of somehow avoiding being poisoned. If you want to call that magic, it certainly introduces Melisandre for the first time. She's still talking like she knows everything, even though, Mikey, you pointed out um, she is fallible, has been known to make mistakes. But she says to him flat out, she says to John, you have so many enemies. Shall I tell you their names? As if it would be as if she would make it that easy right. to just be, be like, yeah, sure. And she like lists them out. OK, you got to watch out for this guy, this guy, this guy. I think she's clearly having him on. But then she pulls this trump card out, which is Egret. Well, not only that, and, but what she says before that, which we know in one way, shape or form actually comes true when she says, right. it is not the foes who curse you to your face that you must fear, but those who smile when you're looking and sharpen their knives when you turn your back. You would do well to keep your wolf close beside you. Ice, I see, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard and naked steel. It was very cold. It's always cold on the wall. (laughs) Except her. She's warm all the time. Her faith warms her. Leaves us a lot to consider. And if you were reading through this book for the first time, there's very clear foreboding. Very, very clear foreboding. But in general, like we've just kind of been harping on ever since we've met Melisandre north of the wall. And, and I, I, I know, I've kind of said this over the course of our readings. It really depends on which day you have her. She's uh, Her mystery grows and grows and grows. And with the conclusion of John 1, owns are upon us. So for the prologue, who gets the own? I have to give it to Thistle. She basically says, oh, hell no, I would rather die than have you push me out of my own body. And that's exactly what she does. Or does she? Um, Thistle, who came back for him when she probably shouldn't have, I think he would have understood the wilding way would be to have just walked away after patching him up. But she had that humanity and it doomed her. But she actually successfully 
fought off this guy who's let's be honest done it before so yeah. i think that uh deserves an own of its own definitely i'm gonna give my own to the shadow cat for peace of the fuck out <laughs> <laughs> i'm out peace did you see that eagle falling from the sky my own for the prologue is going to go to Varamir sort of um, talking about Hagen he says the part when he's talking about abomination being Hagen's favorite word and at the end of that paragraph Varamir says he taught me much and more and the last thing I learned from him was the taste of human flesh um, which is kind of a good representation of how morbidly beautiful this chapter is that George R. R. Martin wrote um, and it's kind of creepy and weird and I liked it for some reason yeah <laughs> I have to give my own to Vermeer, and it's not a popular perspective, but I got to give it to the guy who was not a favorite of his birth situation and rose to be as high in the order of people in the North as he possibly was. It was quite a feat. He used his talents to do terrible things and to rise his station. And in the story, uh, we see sometimes the good rise and sometimes the bad rise. And this person is not morally ambiguous. This person was morally questionable from the beginning, as we read in his chapter. But mm -hmm. he did it, and he did it successfully. And I have to give it to the gods for writing all of the wrongs he did and making him end in such a terrible way and see his own body and friend, new friend, I guess, look at him in the way that she did. And to see the oncoming storm that is the White Walkers and winter coming in ominous fashion. Yeah. And equally ominous might be our owns for a much more, I want to say mysterious chapter, but uh, especially due to the end. What did you guys do for, for John 1? I'm going to, since I did it in the show, I'm going to do it in this chapter. I got to give it to Liana Mormont. <laughs> All right. This is a tough chapter because there's, there's a lot of moments in it which just make you go, damn. This was uh, a long time coming because you, you know the wait was so long. So like putting this chapter into the ether must have been extra satisfying to wake mm -hmm. up and experience what we did with that crow. I think that the crow, the raven, um, deserves a lot of respect because he's hilarious but also really dialed into what the world is feeling. And then there's Stannis who just pulls out Lightbringer and just sets it on the table <laughs> while he's talking like, yeah, in case you weren't paying attention. Oh, that's, or that's fine. She kicked ass. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give it to Stannis, who has just such contempt for people um, and isn't afraid to voice it because he's the effing king. Uh, who is Gilly, he asks. The wet nurse, said Lady Melisandre. Your grace gave him uh, gave her freedom of the castle. And he says, not for running tales. She's wanted for her teats, not for her tongue. I'll have more milk from her and fewer messages. And you can tell he just says messages like, messages. He doesn't like people talking. He doesn't like having not the upper hand at all times. And bless Gilly. Maybe the own goes to her after all for uh, conveying this message, this very important message to John, giving him the upper hand. My own for the John chapter is going to go to Melisandre for calling the wall one of the hinges of the world, um, where she says we walk beneath one of the hinges of the world. I had a moment reading that because it was a reminder that the wall just isn't any old block of ice, you know, that has magic and power um, and is just this incredible wonder. And it kind of gave me chills. So that was, that was a cool moment. 
mm. in yeah. the John chapter. Honorable mention to East Watch by the Sea for being a place of trade in such a strange location, but in, because of its location, uh, getting such a wide variety of traders to visit it, right? Mm-hmm. You would think, you know, we could get a lot more activity somewhere else, but or, or even it wouldn't happen thus far uh, into yeah. the north, but... You know, that's actually a good, that's a good point. That's a really good point. The variety, it's basically your average trading port, but in a really weird place. Exactly. Um, And in a very unlikely place. And there's, the population is very low, but because of its location, uh, the variety of goods is thus. I look forward to hearing all of your owns on the playback, all of your owns on the playback. Um, I do have to (laughs) head out though. And uh, I wish you all a continued merry enjoyment of a feast with dragons the world calls goodbye goodbye eric goodbye eric miss you forever while eric has left us he will not get the opportunity to enjoy the awesomeness that is our listener owns this week and i know for a fact that our listeners are always up to the challenge of owning us this was our first call for owns and this new adventure let's begin on facebook First up is Ash, who says, for the prologue, own to the name Lump. That's got to give you some complexes. And look at the man Lump became. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, For John, own to the wolf dreams. I like to imagine the sunny field where the Starks and Direwolves are all safe together and happy. Whenever a wolf dream takes place, I get a taste for this happy place due to the connection binding them all. Amy Calhoun on Facebook, own for the prologue, goes to foreshadowing. This could ultimately be one of the most important chapters of the series so far and gives us all even more hope that Jon Snow lives. And my own for Jon goes to Leanna Mormont. Bear Island knows no king but the king in the north, whose name is Stark. I have a feeling that will be a common one. So glad that line made it into the show. On Facebook, Bevan Boychuk says, first ever owns for a read-along. Congratulations. Prologue own goes to Thistle for willingly scratching her own eyes out to not be possessed. Uh, and John own goes to Melisandre for quoting my love, regret, and telling John he knows nothing. Mark Mahal says, prologue own goes to Ghost for being described as a, quote, second life worthy of a king. This line really jumped out at me on my first reread after learning John's fate. And Mark's own for John, obviously, goes to Lyanna Mormont, standing up to King Stannis. The Mormont ladies are all so badass. Bear Island. Gary Manis, the Manis, on Twitter, own to John for trying, or trying, to persuade the king to reciprocate for past favors. He even managed to get a laugh out of Stannis the Manis. Blind Beth on Twitter says... Prologue own goes to Varamir's willingness to explore his sexuality by warging a female wolf in heat. Very progressive fellow, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> Christina V. Klein. Great pair of chapters. I especially like how John wonders whether some part of Bran still lives on in summer after having just read how Varamir takes on his second life through one eye. Prologue owned for the description of Varamir's spiritual journey through the existence of all things as he lay dying. Quote, I am the wood and everything that's in it, he thought, exulting. Golly, I hope it's really like that. And to John's wolf dreams, that they may someday help him to realize that Brandon Rickon are alive and not just in their wolves. Reese Palazzolo, prologue. Own goes to the unnamed boy with the bone knife who stabbed Varimir and brought on the death of yet another prologue character. On a side note, when Varimir starts to think about Jon Snow, I find it quite interesting that he could tell that he was a warg and that the gift was strong in him. 
but that he was just untrained. Could this possibly be an early clue as to the fate of John? Hmm. Mm. And own for the John chapter goes to the good old Sam, who is great. Who is great at reading about archery, but not so good at actually doing it. Damn those blisters. Ad Astro Horizons on Twitter says, Own goes to George R. R. Martin himself for laying the warg-based resurrection groundwork from the get-go. Didn't get it on the first read. Our good friend Kim Gabrielson, prologue for Dance with Dragons, the own goes to Hagen's favorite word, abomination. Abomination! Uh-oh, Bran. And John, own goes to Mormont's Raven once again. Sure is an intelligent bird, keeping it close with the commanders of the Night's Watch, getting to know everything that's going on. Bird point, corn for him. Two parts rye. Own to John for having ale for breakfast. You can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning. Very true. <laughs> And then Momo at Scheming Sailor says, Own to Mormont's Raven for annoying John and eating Mormont's face. Hashtag nevermore. Hashtag my pet loves me. Our good friend Simon tweeted in, Own to the prologue for being the third to be beyond the wall and have people being attacked by whites and others. Hashtag abomination. Abomination. And for the John chapter, quote, His grace is growing fond of you. John says, I can tell. He only threatened to behead me twice. Hashtag, laws should be made of iron, not of pudding. And Brienne of Tarth writes, Okay, a Dance with Dragons prologue own goes to Thistle for going after Varamyr, even if she didn't quite have a say in it, because, damn, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. And then on email, Lady Bender Fry says... Prologue, I have to give this one to Thistle. That crazy wildling literally bit off her own tongue to try and stop Varamyr from warging into her. And then at the end of the chapter, when Thistle sees Varamyr, that was just awesome and chilling. Varamyr had it coming. John, this own has to go to Mormont's Raven for knowing how to get what he wants and being a constant mystery. That bird is too clever by a half and had been the old bear's companion for long years, but that had not stopped it from eating Mormont's face once he died. I'm convinced that the bird is indeed more clever than the average bird. Maybe Mormont lives on inside, or perhaps Bloodraven has more influence at the wall than we think. Time will tell. Questions. Infinite questions on the subject. So those are the owns that we have for this week's chapter. Thank you. You can, of course, send in your owns in a number of different ways. You can tweet at us at Game of Owns on Twitter. Scroll upon our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns, or shoot us an email at contact at Game of Owns. Dot com. Two really great chapters coming up next week, and we hope that you will share your owns with us for them. The Prophet and the Captain of the Guards. Very cryptic chapter titles. And as mentioned earlier in the show, one of the benefits of being a patron at a certain level uh, is to be a part of our small council, which we meet with regularly and uh, we like to talk about all things. Um, obviously, Game of Thrones is at the top of that list, but they have been uh, really influential in helping us shape the direction of the show. So we are uh, very grateful to them, as we are to all of our supporters. We create a second podcast. So that's a show apart from the one you're listening to right now, Game of Bones, called A Squad of Ice and Fire at patreon.com slash goo. This is something that we create specifically for the supporters of this podcast, the people who make everything you're listening to possible. And the month is almost February. So you know what that means, Micah. It means that over on iTunes, nothing less than five stars is acceptable when you rate and review this show. 
Uh, we do appreciate you going over there and giving us your feedback. Uh, five stars, nothing less is acceptable. Just the rule. It's been the rule for many, many years on this show, and it's not changing anytime soon. We thank you for reviewing us and uh, hope that you will continue to do so here in 2016. Next week, it's the prophet and the captain of the guards. So get your owns ready. This is really weird doing it by myself. What is dead may never die. 